this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play now? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash book riot. That's g.co slash play slash book riot. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 271, recording on Thursday, July 26th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. I'm kind of doing a one-on-one-off. I was out last week. I'm going to be out next week. I'm in between here. It's a hello and a goodbye. (laughs) It is. It's it's lots going on that are boring to anyone who's not me or uh, in my immediate family, but going on vacation, other stuff going on. But... Um, heard you had a great show with Sharifa. Who's coming on next week? Have you lined it up yet? Do you know? Jen is coming on next week. Ah, Jen. Everybody loves Jen. Uh, this so let's see, I don't think we have any. Fo- oh, I, one quick thing: if you're behind on annotated, you haven't tried annotated. Uh, the the second season is now complete in the books. All eight episodes are available. Go find it at your podcast catcher of choice, choice or bookriot.com slash listen. The other news for those of you catching up or have already completed: uh, we're going monthly starting in the fall. So every month on the first of the month, um, I'm getting cooking on the September 1st one as we speak. Uh, you're going to listen to it. So thank you all for listening. It's, we're going to keep going until we have enough resources and time and energy to do two a month. But one a month on the first of the month, starting September 1st, you can go check that out now. We're kind of in the summer. I mean, it's late Ooh, it July. It feels like summer It's now. very doldrumy. It's like doldrumy dog day ish. This is yeah. the first day of sunshine in like a week and a half here. Oh, is that and, right? Yeah, and it feels like publishing is ju- has just ground to a halt yeah. as well. There's just been not much happening. We have like a third of our staff all on vacation yep. this week. That's right. <laughs> just- yeah, we do. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people. That's a, that it has been a clay oven here, man. It has been hot and dry, very uh, unseasonable. Well. I don't know. Anymore, it's seasonable. I don't know what to tell you about global warming, but in Portland, it should not be in the mid-90s for a week. It just Ooh, doesn't no, happen. No. Um, so we're, we're getting through it, but it, it's very doldrum. I mean, we have some stuff to talk about here, I guess. Boy, though the first headline is a super boring one. I think it's more interesting than it actually says. So an investment group, um, let's see, uh, Schottenfeld uh, Investments went on a buying spree of Barnes & Noble stock. Um, but almost six percent of outstanding shares. So it's enough that you've got to file with the the SEC and do things of that nature. Um, so he basically this guy Schottenfeld owns largely this investment firm and said he thinks there's some opportunity here um, for expenses to come down and in store and online shopping to go up. Um, this I don't know if you've got a whole bunch of money and you're willing to take a flyer. Buying Barnes & Noble right now is not a horrible idea just because it's so down, downtrodden. It's hard to think of a worse – if it's not actually going to die, which it might not, but it also might, it wouldn't be a terrible t- – the stock is way down um, over the last year, two years, and they're without a CEO. They've been trying to figure out stuff to do with Barnes & Noble Kitchen, this online stuff. They don't know what they're doing. And it's kind of like buying real estate or stocks in general. Like if you have some – Sitting on this, if you have some cash on the sidelines and you can get in when things are messy, there's a lot of risk, but there's also going to be a lot of upside. So I don't know what to make of this, except maybe that's the kind of thing where they look at the balance sheet, they look at the brand, like this is just, it's in bad shape, but it's not in that bad of a shape. I mean, that's the kind of story <laughs> I'm seeing here. Yeah, I was thinking the same that I understand, well, I kind of understand getting in now while it's not mm-hmm. very expensive per share 
to get in um, and to have you know this much of a stake where you could maybe have some sway over what yes. happens, what kind of decisions the company makes. We were talking several weeks, maybe a month ago, about how difficult it's been for Barnes & Noble to hold on to a CEO and to find a good CEO who can take the company in a direction that you know turns it around and gets the ship righted. Uh, so it's interesting to me after, I guess, from our position of seeing so many attempts to right the ship that have been yeah. just weird ideas or things that seem to be obviously bad ideas, but that they're going for. It's interesting from sort of repeatedly talking about like what is Barnes & Noble doing to see someone look and say, oh, I think there's still interesting opportunity mm -hmm. and value here. I wish that he would talk some about what he thinks these opportunities are. Um, yeah. Other than, it, well, there must be a way. Um, I, must, I would assume that someone who's investing this much money in a company has given significant thought to what, how they might extract more value from that going forward. And I, I will be interested to see if this makes any difference. Um, I guess, you know, once the, these investments are in place, you don't really know like which shareholder um, swayed a decision or was part of right. a company taking something in a different turn. But if in a couple of months we see some new interesting idea from Barnes & Noble, it's possible that it's because mm -hmm. of this. It'll be interesting to watch. The the language from uh, Schottenfeld is pretty generic. It says there's no mm -hmm. specific plan or proposal for Barnes & Noble other than searching for ways to boost the stock price. Um, the retailer says there might be uh, room for improvement in business management operations and capital structure. I'm not sure what else there is in a company <laughs> besides business management operations. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's kind of like saying... Most um, of the things. It's kind of like a waiter coming to your table and saying, is anything right? Rather than, is anything, is, is, every, is everything okay? Right. There is there are any, opportunities what, what to any, improve the appetizers, entrees, and desserts on this right, menu. Right, yeah. Um, the food is terrible in such small portions, as the old Catskill joke sort of goes. Uh, it, maybe, though, you know, it, I, I haven't done a deep dive into this. When Borders went out of business, there was a lot of talk about how the business itself was actually pretty stable. It just had been mismanaged. So mm. those two things can feel like a, a contradiction. How can the business be in good shape but also be mismanaged? But, like, the fundamentals were okay. There was enough money coming in to have a business if these other sort of higher order screw-ups hadn't happened. And I wonder a little bit if there's something going with Barnes & Hill. Maybe he's looking deep into the balance and say, okay, let's get rid of all this nook business and don't worry mm. about online. And like, we've got all these contracts and retail things. Are people shopping at enough of these stores that if only if all we had was that, is there a business? And my guess is, and I've looked at a little bit, I'm, I'm not an expert in this kind of thing, but I've been curious, like, the numbers aren't horrible. Like, Uber lo loses more money in quarter than Barnes & Noble does by like an order right. of magnitude is just because they have growth. But it could be someone says, okay, if we just nip and tuck here and we can get a CEO that's not flashy, that's not throwing a whole bunch of money at some problem, but they're really sort of an operations person that let's just tighten up. Don't worry about doing kitchens mm -hmm. or serving wine or whatever. Let's sell books, more of them in our best locations and let everything else sort of do what it's going to do. Maybe, maybe there's something there. That, that would be my hope, I think, yeah, um, that frankly. That sounds right to me that Barnes yeah. & Noble doesn't actually need a bunch of fancy new ideas and mm -hmm. often chasing down the next fancy new idea is just a distraction from continuing right. to get the basics right or even getting the basics right in the first place. And so it kind of feels to me like the conversations that you hear in sports about, like, you have to master the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. You don't need all the bells and whistles and that a return to what are the fundamental elements of book selling, of running a bricks and a primarily bricks and mortar business in a chain. You know, how do we go back to the, like, very foundational elements of this business would be a great starting point, I think, for a new CEO or for the board of Barnes & Noble to be looking at because all the new flashies haven't worked and new flashies right. very rarely work. People can kind of read an attempt at new flashy for what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, so it would be, you know, most of the time it's like, oh, what are they? What are they doing? Uh, I think it's it would be smart and interesting to see that happen. And especially if it's not even about we're trying to get new people in the door, but how can we sell like, you know, a tenth of a book more per customer? Yeah. Um, just those incremental additions that can drive growth over time. Uh, yeah, you know, some, that made me think, and maybe we haven't put it this plainly, but I think the question is really this simple. Is there a business for Barnes & Noble that's about selling primarily books in physical locations mm -hmm. and some sidelines as a chain in the current 
economic environment, you know, retail landscape of books. If there is, then do that and focus on that. Get that right. And if not, you don't have a company. That's that's it to me. I mean, I don't think there's a world that you're, you already said it that where Barnes and Noble suddenly becomes I don't know like what's this IHOP business where they're international international oh. house of burgers or well, something like that. I, I don't think there's a move like that no. for Barnes and Noble where suddenly they're like T-shirts or something like that. There's there's no big pivot. So just do the core thing mm-hmm. right. Yeah, and the IHOP thing, just to have a momentary tangent <laughs> oh, no. oh, right. An open about this. Uh, box they, of well, I just saw a, a new commercial a couple of days ago. They're taking it back. So they're, I think that the what? backlash, yeah. So the commercial that I've seen running is like, ha ha, we were just kidding. That whole International House of Burgers thing was just to publicize the fact that we have burgers now. We're staying IHOP. We'll always be IHOP. But it comes across, like Bob and I saw the commercial at the same time and we were both like, oh, that is some flaming BS. Like mm. they did this big IHOP thing and they had like weeks of promotion up to like something big is coming. We're changing our name. And I think the backlash was so strong from people being like, what are you doing? They were like, what if we could just pass this off as a joke? That's like the the corporate version of the old pull my finger gag. Oh, you got me. Okay, great. You're very clever. You lied to me. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. Ha ha ha. And when I want a burger, the thing I think of is let's go to the pancake people. It's it's like disgusting. It it makes my stomach turn a little bit. It is, I think, a useful analogy here because Mm. when when I want like a nice dinner out with my friends, I don't think let's go to the bookstore. You know, even if the bookstore has a restaurant in it. And Barnes & Noble hasn't done anything as gimmicky as trying to change the brand, either for real or as a joke that they take back. I don't even know. But it's a difference of degree and not of kind. Can, can we do two more minutes on Barnes and Noble just because this reminds me of a couple of other things I that we were always in a, have couple, two more minutes. A couple of different Barnes and Noble's um, observations. I was randomly I was in our beloved Plaza Barnes and Noble while I was back in <gasps> oh. Kansas last week, and then I went to a couple of their Barnes and Nobles randomly while we we're at the malls and other things doing mm-hmm. stuff with the kids. And I always go in and look around. Two things struck me. First of all, some of these Barnes and Nobles still have dedicated sections for CDs and vinyl. I, <laughs> And and if you you could probably not staff that section and there would be no people in it for the whole day. That that's one. The other thing that made me think the other thing I was wondering too is like everyone talks, especially independent bookstores, talk about how vital the children's section is mm. to the store. And and almost without fail, every time I've been in a Barnes and Noble of late, the place where you can guarantee to find the most humans walking around and actually that aren't, you know, employees is in the children's section. But weirdly, the children's section is usually in the back, upstairs, around the corner. I don't know if it's one of those deals they want to make you walk through the whole rest of the freaking store to get there. Mm. But I'm just wondering, like, what if you put the children's sections up front a little bit? Like, get rid of or the you music. you could see them when you were passing you could by see the, the Yeah, like, there's kids in there. They're looking at books. It's adorable. There's story time. There's stuff going on. The most vibrant part of any Barnes & Noble I've seen is really, it's the Starbucks cafe, mm-hmm. uh, it's the bathrooms. And the children's section, and it just got me thinking about is the is the is the horse in front of this particular cart in the right way? I mean, forget about the music. Like that's you know that's a vestige of another thing. That's like our appendixes. We still have them, even though we need them. We just haven't gotten around to taking uh, evolving past them yet. I think that's what they are with the music section. But it really got me wondering. Like, it's fun to go in a bustling. No one likes to go in an empty store. No. But if you put the most active part of the store in the back, no matter how active it is, people can't see it. So that's something else I was wondering about too. Like, if you're just thinking about, okay, what makes an inviting store? There's people in there, there's activity, you, the kids want to go in, you've got the coffee up front, and you keep the, the what I loved as a, as a Barnes & Noble customer, as a teenager, was the stacks and stacks of books that like only I cared about. Mm-hmm. Put that all in the back. Don't make me yeah. walk through all that stuff. It's freaky and it feels weird. I don't like that. Um, put it all in front. Anyway, those are my, that was my free advice to Schottenfeld and the new uh, Barnes & Noble um, the Brain Trust, whoever they may be. So anyway, there we go. Uh, let's do a sponsor, I guess, before right. we get out of the way. Our next sponsor this week is How to Love a Jamaican by Alexia Arthurs. Tenderness and cruelty, loyalty and betrayal, ambition and regret. Award-winning author Alexia Arthurs navigates these tensions to extraordinary effect in her debut collection. Best-selling author Zadie Smith calls it thrilling and says Alexia Arthur is all too easy to love. These stories are intimate tales that take on today's important topics, race, class, immigration, teenage pregnancy, gay culture, and they sweep from a 
close-knit island community in Jamaica to the streets of New York City and Midwestern university towns. These are 11 stories, most of them never before published, that form the portrait of a nation, a people, and a way of life. So that is How to Love a Jamaican by Alexia Arthurs. It's available now wherever books are sold, or you can find a link in the show notes. And we talked about this on all the books earlier this week, and Liberty loved this book. So uh, this comes with the Liberty seal of approval as well. Um, Other big meta industry news. I feel like we've done a similar version of this story. Several times. Like the last 10 years. Like as long as we've been doing this has been the story. And the story is um, last year sales about like the year before. Basically. So this is down. 27 cent had small decline. Final estimates by the Associated American Publisher, but total 2017 industry sales at $26.23 billion, down slightly, very slightly, mm-hmm. from $26.27 billion generated in 2016. Um, if, let's see. I mean, look, you need, your, you, you need to have a Bayesian prior to know if that's good or bad. You know, the economy is in good shape. Inflation is up. The, high, you know, the Fed is raising rates, so that means the economy is growing. You don't really want to be shrinking when the economy is growing. Um, so beware, all of you that look at Twitter and things like that, when you see people crowing about sales and print and everything being flat or slightly up. Well, if they're just keeping up, with with the overall economy, they'd be doing better than this. So lagging the overall economy, I think, I don't know. Does it? I feel like if I were writing this headline, that or if I was writing this article, that's where I would head. That's where I would say is like, publishing sales lag overall economy. That's more mm-hmm. interesting than small decline year over year. But that's me. More interesting, but then you can't get the even attempts at crowing. Uh, right. social sharing. Like that is not an article anyone wants to share. Well, and this social. isn't Publishers Weekly, right? It, it, <laughs> right. You know, it, it's not, it's not, it's not jerkwad, um, barely literate commentator, Jeff Weekly. That's not what this is. <laughs> this is for publishers uh, to read. So anyway, um, there was, uh, what see, do you want to say? What, do, what any numbers jump out to you within sa- that let's top see, line? The sales in the trade segment rose yeah. a little bit, um, but the gain in the trade segment was led by an increase of 5.4% in adult nonfiction sales. That I think hmm. must be tied to. Oh wait, was Fire and Fury twenty eighteen? No. Uh-uh. Tw- no. Okay, it was twenty eighteen. Yeah, it was twenty eighteen. What Time happened was twenty seventeen. So right, um, there was Hillary. Um, I'm not sure. I can't think of the. I guess when Breath comes to air was that last year? Oh, or was that, that was like twenty sixteen or twenty sixteen. Maybe right. I mean, what'd be interesting to see this year yeah. because we've had some big sellers. Fire and Fury sell. The Higher Loyalty mm-hmm. has been selling. That Magnolia uh, Table book. Oh, God, which, yeah. Oh, selling. And oh, someone, my word. So we talked about that. Sharif and I talked about Magnolia yeah. Table last week because the um, because it, it sold like 675,000 copies. Mm. And we were like, They're, they don't even cook on Fixer Upper. But I was corrected by someone in the Insiders Slack, the Book Riot Insiders, who said apparently on the newest season or the last season of Fixer Upper, they open a restaurant called Magnolia mm. Table. Or So there is something food related, but I only ever see Fixer Upper mm. in reruns because I'm convinced that HGTV exists for 35-year-olds who are trying to fall asleep. Mm. Um, <laughs> but that um, that's going to be one of them from this year, too. It's interesting mm. that she, that book is going to be wedged between a higher loyalty and fire and fury, most likely. Yeah. Um, other notes in there. Uh, auto, downloadable audio was up. Big surprise. 28.8%. $820 million in Ooh. revenue. Um, now more now more sales than mass market paperback, which is an interesting that milestone is really that I really thought about. Some of that is the, the erosion of mass market paperback sales has been eaten largely by digital, as far as I can tell. Speaking of digital ebooks, fell 5.3% in the year. So no... There's no collapse in e-reading. You know, that's another thing that mm-hmm. the print triumphalists have sort of been wondering or hoping for to see, I guess, um, to $2.05 billion. So still a little between two and three times mm-hmm. downloadable audio still in um, e-books, which I don't know if that's like if that's good or bad. It'd be curious to see over time what the function is, is like in, in the digital space, we have audio and e-books. Is, is one of them going to be higher or are we just growing to some sort of parity? Are they cannibalizing each other? I think that's a story that we still yeah. don't really understand. Well, the next sentence there is that between 2013 and 2017, ebook mm. sales fell 36.7%, which is 
a very significant number. Um, I don't want to kick us off on another ebook pricing rant, but mm. I do think that has something to do with it. That ebooks, the pricing has gotten a little wonkier, more expensive yeah. in many ways, and downloadable audio is becoming gradually more affordable. Um, so while we you're right. We haven't seen the function of that or exactly how the dollars are getting split differently. It's, I think, not unreasonable to guess that some of those dollars that would have gone to ebooks are going back to print because the uh, incentive to buy digitally is just not there in terms of pricing anymore. Or it's not often there in terms of pricing. And some might be going to audio as people um, just adopt the audio format. But I'm honestly kind of surprised that I haven't seen this one line taken out of context and turned mm-hmm. into um, print remains strong or like mm. readers turn their backs on ebooks. Hooray. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, sales through online tre- retailers up 6.5% year over year, accounted for 38.8% of all trade sales, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Sales through physical retailers fell 6.5%. I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's got to go somewhere. Uh, 24% of sales. I guess combine, if you go back one second, if you combine ebook sales of $2.05 billion, with 820 million, uh, 820 million in downloadable audio, you get you know 2.9 billion. So, just about 12 to 15 percent of all book sales in the U.S. last year were uh, I, I, digital. I guess ebooks are digital too. They're either audio or ebooks. Still a pretty low, pr- pretty small. Number, especially mm-hmm. given how it dominates the discourse and things are going this way and Kindles and ebooks and blah, 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 the sky is falling. But still only combined, um, you know, less than 20% of all trade sales, which I don't know if it's good or bad. Like you and I have talked about this mm-hmm. before. Would the publishing industry better be better off if it was more, if it embraced new technology faster with different pricing if they if embrace Scribd and some of these other Oyster and some of these things we've mm-hmm. seen. Oh, they, they, they haven't jumped in with two feet. They no. just haven't. Um, it seems like they've protected, the, it, has, it has formed a bit of a moat around their print sales. But do you want to be on that island, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is the question we're still trying to figure out at this point. So, you know, it's it's the same story we've had over the last three to five years as we've been doing this show. Um, but I'm not sure there's anything else interesting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't have anything interesting <laughs> to say about this, this kind of story around yep. books and reading right now. Yeah, I think uh, that's sales. about where we are. My own reading, I'll say just as a, as a micro anecdata, um, has also been relatively stable over the last few years. Like I, I have a mix of ebooks and audiobooks and some print, mm-hmm. and I haven't been push me, pull you in a a direction that's really changed the mix that much of late. I don't know what you feel about yeah, that. That's I was my own stasis. Really heavily digital in the year or so that Oyster was up and running. Nope. Um mm-hmm. and after that, it sort of reverted back to like m- most of my reading is galleys, frankly. And so it depends on what right. format the galley arrives in. Is it a paper galley at my doorstep or did I download something? But when I'm buying books, it's I usually am making like an impulse ebook purchase unless I'm traveling. Um, in which case it's, you know, print books if I'm if I happen to noodle into a, a bookstore. But it, it is a relatively stable pattern. My audio consumption has gone up a little bit just because I, f- I finally figured out how to incorporate audio into my life in a way that allows me to listen to something on a pretty regular basis. But it's not there haven't been any big shifts. Um, but I I am much less digital than I was um, by virtue of the fact that I feel like the digital options aren't as appealing yeah, as they were right. when Oyster was a big thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. okay. Let's go on to news flashes that will surprise no one who's been paying any at all kind of attention for 500, Alex. Oh, no. um, the, the headline here is IBM team identifies deep gender bias in 50 years of Booker Prize shortlist. So um, the the lead of this story is some of the world's most celebrated literary works are filled with gender bias. Rebecca, I don't know if you knew, but like gender bias in historical works is like a thing. Next thing I know, you're going to tell me that the Western canon is mostly books by white men. Uh, So a team at IBM um, took the plot descriptions from Goodreads for the last 50 years of Booker Prize shortlisted titles. 
okay. put them through some sort of machine learning algorithm that you know looked at um, the mentions of men and women and uh, qualitative description of them, what jobs they used, what happened to them in the plot, and basically says uh, male characters figured more prominently in plots, were depicted as powerful, wealthy, and strong. It showed female characters were more likely to be depicted as beautiful or romantic instead. Um, again, I don't want to... I was initially came down really hard on this study and story because it's like, I don't know, duh.net is, is, is publishing this. I don't know what, what where this is. Except I was reminded of our talk about the Vita, and some people mm-hmm. said thank you for this kind of point about like, just because it's obvious doesn't mean data that about its obviousness isn't useful, right? Yeah. Like the anti-gaslighting element, spotlighting, someone used mm-hmm. as a term, I like that. Like, here it is, plain as day. You don't have to be convinced. They're not saying this is a new discovery. This is information we didn't have. But here is a, you know... You can put this in. You put this in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, whichever, yeah. <laughs> whichever exactly. you want to take this. That's that's you exactly know. the point that I was going to make about this. Like, I don't think that anyone who pays attention to books is surprised mm-hmm. to note that really what's happening here is that stereotypical presentations of male and female characters in fiction mirror stereotypical presentations of men and women in the world. Um, but it's very nice to have. The data um, from, especially from something like a big shortlist for a well-respected prize, yes. like this is not you, you. That knocks out the level of like, well, what if it was just? What if those were just like the lowbrow books? Like these are the highbrow, respectable mm-hmm. reading, and they're rife with these problems. Um, it's interesting here. They note that um, men's occupations were often listed as having higher level jobs. They were more likely to be uh, male characters, doctors, professors, novelists, directors, and priests. Female characters were mainly described as teachers and whores. So that's uplifting. Um, along (laughs) with nurse, maid, secretary, or child bride. Uh, (laughs) There are word clouds for descriptive terms. Oh, used. it's 2003. Uh, yes, word clouds. Words, the word it's cloud back. is back. Um, yeah, but wow. for descriptive terms for male and female characters, so the male characters get brilliant, young, old. Um, the female characters get beautiful, young, pretty. Um, there are a lot more words about the female characters' appearances. And here is one that I think is really interesting, is that male characters um, are considered pivotal to the plot, and they are mentioned many, many more times than female characters are, like almost twice as many. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah, over time, female characters were mentioned 50% less than males. So the female characters get short shrift kind of all the way around. Um, not surprising, but it does feel validating to actually see the data here. Right. And, um, and not unrelated, I think, is that of the 50 years that the prize has been awarded, it's been awarded to 31 men and 16 women. So twice as many men as women have won the Booker Prize. There's not a note in here about the um, gender breakdown of the authors of all 275 Mm. shortlisted works, but I would not be surprised if it's skewed male as well. So you have a bunch of different turtles here about what kinds of books um, publishing values, what kinds of stories have been traditionally valued in culture, and then what the elements are that are going to be inside those stories and how the characters are presented. So I do, I, I appreciated your joke on our back channels about like, oh, it took machine learning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The robots tell us people will believe us. (laughs) To Um, make us believe that gender bias is real, but it's nice to, I think it's nice to actually see this for exactly that, put the, put it in your pipe and smoke it purpose of like, well, where's your data about this? It's right here. It's right here. Um, Another thing that's, I think worth mentioning too, is that, the disparity isn't like backloaded for the first 20 years and things are fine now. Like right. you, you get that sometimes these kinds of graphs like, mm-hmm. well, 50% more, but like in the, in well, this only goes back to 69, let's say in the seventies, it was really bad. And that's skewing the parody that's existing today. Look at the graph. You can just tell with your eye, it's not getting much better. Really? Mm-hmm. You get, you get, a, you get a, a decade or so where there's a little more parody, but then there'll be these huge divergencies with these big spikes in the number of male mentions. There's one in 2010, weirdly, 50 mentions of male characters and like two of female mm-hmm. characters. And that's, you know, that that's less than 10 years ago. 
Um, and as far as I can tell, there was only one year in which there were more female characters mentioned than men. And it looks like it was 1981. Um, there's been a year where there was an equal number mm-hmm. or two, but like that's just what it is. And when it's bad, it's real bad. Like 93 to 2010, even 2016, like double the number in that given year. Um, in the, in the, weirdly in the mid seventies, it was, I don't know. I don't know what to make of the day. It's just interesting to look at and see there's variation, but the story, the song has remained the same, yeah. uh, really for the last 50 years, as far as I can tell. It's interesting, even with all the the spike of the uh, the girl with the whatever titles yeah. that mm. we didn't see. A well, they don't get shortlisted boost. for stuff. Oh, that's true. Right? I mean, that's they true. just don't. They just don't right. make it. To, yeah, to this that's level, right. It would be useful speaking. if it were uh, all yeah. of publishing. Um, so sadly, predictable data that I'm glad we have. <laughs> Yeah, I guess while we're on it, um, let's move down because we did get this week the um, long list for the Man mm-hmm. Booker Prize. I, I don't know if I've mentioned on the show, I even more out of depth than normal, I haven't read fiction at all this year. Not one novel. So that this is, is so all surprising. Are you just yeah. now you're saving yourself for the next Marilyn Robinson or something? I don't know. It's all, you know, I told you I wanted, I'm, I'm on this travel memoir kick. You know, I've done, I've ripped off like 12 or 14 of those in a row. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I don't, I'm, a, I'm a mystery, Rebecca. I don't know what to tell you, but um, <laughs> well, I know that. Jeff. Yeah, so I don't know what to say. There, there's a. I guess the most interesting things to me is the first time a graphic novel mm-hmm. uh, was shortlisted, and the first time um, uh, a, a crime writer, uh, you know, a, a, a genre crime writer, this being mm-hmm. Belinda Bauer, got a nomination. So um, the graphic novel is Sabrina by Nick. D-R-N-Dernasso. I, I don't know. That's a that's a non-Anglo uh, vowel constellation. I don't know how to do that one. D-R-N-A-S-O. You can look it up. And then um, the crime, I said, Blinda Bauer mm-hmm. for Snap. Um, frontless, I mean, the ones I've heard of is, you know, I guess there's uh, availability bias. <laughs> um, but the, the Warlight by Ondaje is getting a lot of talk. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that... The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner is interesting. Um, I, I don't know. Is there anything else that jumps out of you as being worthy? You can. Oh, we'll be linking the show notes. You can. Everyone can peruse. Yeah, I don't. I'm not familiar with a lot of these either, um, which was an mm-hmm. interesting surprise to me. Usually, and I'm reading a lot of fiction, kind of as always for um, for all the books. But I think it's this is part of an interesting story in publishing that the big prizes are conferring value on mm-hmm. not just literary fiction anymore, but that a graphic novel can be nominated, that a crime story can be nominated um, and to make the shortlist for a big prize like this. And we've seen it, you know, the national book awards recognize um, some titles that fall into those categories and um, March was nominated or won last year. I can't remember which. Um, But I think that's an encouraging thing. And certainly I was thinking like earlier this month marked the 10th anniversary of when I started my first book blog. And Mm. I was thinking about things that have changed in the last 10 years as the bookish internet has really diversified the conversation. Um, And I think it's this acknowledgement and recognition of, you know, really high quality work that has always been going on in, in comics and in graphic novels and in genre fiction, but that was previously sort of white towered away. Um, and we're not doing that as much anymore. It's still definitely a problem, but it's encouraging to have seen that gradual shift over the last 10 years. And I hope we'll continue to see more of it. I think it's, it's, great. And it's really wonderful for readers, um, both for readers who care about these kinds of stories to be able to see them valued alongside the like snooty highbrow fiction that you're supposed to like. Um, But it's also good for introducing previously snooty readers to new kinds of stories and giving them that validity. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the yeah. Most it is interesting, interesting when we this. both had our own blogs. Like the genre war things was really in full heat. Yeah, and get, yeah. You know, lobs from the uh, hoi polloi from us on the blogosphere saying, you know, genre is fine, genre is mm-hmm. good, welcome genre, and then you'd get dispatches from the Atlantic about you know right. what you know well, art is I art mean, and that kind of thing. And I feel like that's over. I feel like that's, I think it's mostly over. It, or it mm-hmm. doesn't go well when anybody tries to do it yeah. now. Like the New York Times book review did run that horrible 
romance overview a couple of months ago by that like 85 yeah, year old. Yeah, but they ran a romance thing. I mean, right. I think that's where the medium is the message is maybe yeah. more important than what they actually was said is they read a, they wrote, they, they ran a whole big thing about romance and mm-hmm. now they've got romance calling them. It's like, um, the mountain has come to Muhammad in terms of yeah, where that a, conversation is It is a big shift. Like, I, I'm actually mentioning romance. Like, I feel like that's when I will know that the genre war is over oh, that's is when a romance novel gets nominated for like the National Book Award or makes the shortlist for the Man Booker or something like that. When someone, mm. like when we really decide that we're going to take the best works of any genre seriously. That's interesting. Yeah, that that will be a um, red letter day for sure. Um, let's see. Anything, I, the other comments, not in the piece that we ran for Book Riot, just the news piece, but someone I saw mentioned, I'm not sure if this is true, um, but I think, it, I think it's right because I looked at it briefly, is that there was a crime writer and a comic artist on the panel to choose. Mm, mm-hmm. So this is one of those situations where you get some other people that choose different kinds of books. I know it's going to come as a shock. They will choose different kinds of books. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the pool of nominators diversifies, yes. expands, widens, what other other uh, verb you want to use about <laughs> getting bigger and more inclusive. Yeah. Um, not surprisingly, as night must follow day, they're going to nominate different kinds of books. It would be weird if they didn't. Actually, yeah, maybe that's uh, so what that's it is. Like, well. someone should put Sarah McLean on the nominating committee for yeah. one of these prizes, and then we'll get to see some romances show up. Right. Uh, so there's that. A related one to that is uh, kind of a random sauce uh, dressing <laughs> for this story, but um, IKEA uh, UK created reading rooms to celebrate the Man Booker Prize long list. So basically, what they did is. They made these book clubs um, where the public can read and take away a copy of one of the 13 long list of titles at its Wembley store in North London. So they made these little, uh, I don't know why they're not calling them libraries or reading nooks. I don't know why they're calling them book clubs or whatever. Um, But they can come to IKEA Wembley and get a good read, relaxing conditions. And um, you can also book the room for one hour to host Presumably your book club or mm-hmm. whatever else you want to do there. So anyway, I thought that was pretty cool. Weirdly, yeah. they don't have any pictures of the thing. It's just like this, I don't know, like court reporter sketch drawing yeah. of what they well, might look like. Oh, it, so it's I running get, from July 31st to August 5th. So I, I guess they don't exist yet. Yeah, I thought they might have. Anyway, I thought they'd have more than like a line drawing. to. Anyway, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a separate kind of quibble. Um, so if you live up there... In uh, jolly old England, or especially if you can make it to the Wembley Room and you want to snap us a pic, yeah, I'd like to see that book right at uh, podcast at bookwrite.com. I think this is fun. Um, yes, IKEA is like that's a fun experience. Usually, assuming that like your you know relationship stays intact through the process mm-hmm. of of shopping, but it's smart on IKEA's part to like let's highlight these great books, but also you can sit in our comfy chairs for an hour at a time, like mm-hmm. and and read and maybe decide that you need that chair or you pick need... up a few Billy bookcases. Exactly, while you're there. you need yeah. the chair, you need the bookcase whatever. Um, also a great sort of guilt-free way for someone to be like, you know what? I think I'm just going to sit here for an hour. You go pick out the bedside tables, uh, and just chill out. Normally, I mean, I at least feel like if I'm furniture shopping, I shouldn't sit for too long. Like it's not, you know, respectable to just pop a squat and hang out. Um, but this, I think it's very smart. It's a smart way to get people to sit in Ikea furniture, but it's just a Mm -hmm. cool cross promotion of the, like of the cross industry promotional things that we've seen in our time doing this. This is one of the better ones. Yeah. I mean, frankly, in some corners of Ikea, like just turning a couple of chairs towards the bookcase section is mm-hmm. a reading room. I mean, yeah. they have all those Billy bookcases. It's the most successful bookcase of all time. Um, they sold. I, there was a story that floated around, I guess, last year sometime about how there's been hundreds of millions yeah. of Billy bookcases sold, probably more books on Billy bookcases than all the other bookcases combined in the world right now. It, it makes a degree of sense um, mm-hmm. to, to draw it. You know, when Clint and I were first thinking about doing the site at all, you know, one thing I remember we talked about is like, you know, it's not it's not it's not a uh, a radical thing to write a site about items that people buy dedicated furniture for. Like people buy books, and it's part of their house. It's part of their decoration. It's part of their life. They put it up front as part of who they are. And so, as, as we're thinking about, is there a thing here that's not just book reviews? Or like people live with books. Like look around your house. Mm-hmm. What else is there? I mean, there's not that many things that a lot of people have in the same space. 
Um, and I think that's a recognition of Kia's. Is like it's a combination of a lot of things you've got. They're, they're, they're name dropping their stools and their rugs and their chairs and whatever. But it's all around this activity of storing, looking at, reading, distributing books. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, so good on Ikea. Smart idea. It'd be fun to go there and check it out. Why don't I do an advertisement? Please do. Should I do that? I think it's about I think time. The, I think it is time. <laughs> the Great Courses Plus. We've talked about them before. It's summer. It's slow out there. A lot of your favorite podcasts, <clears throat> like annotated and recommended, maybe have gone on hiatus. You're looking to get smarter somehow. Summer is the perfect time to dive deeply into interesting topics and learn something new. And guess what? The Great Courses Plus is a great way to do just that. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll discover new interests and pick up new hobbies with fascinating insight from leading professors and experts. Unlimited access to thousands of lectures in virtually any category, literature, human behavior, history, science, art, music. Those are categories. I named six. There are thousands more. Watch or listen anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. I can attest it works great. It's on my phone right now. I'm getting ready to go on a plane and on a trip, and I've got a couple of things picked it out. They recommend their course, The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. So this is another thing, too. Not just learning, but if, you, if you're interested in writing, if you're a fan of that particular genre, there's some interesting things you can learn about craft and learning about the history and, and uh, uh, creation of all the interesting things that go on in human life. This particular course explores both the history of its genre and its techniques, looking at the masters like Agatha Christie, Edgar Allan Poe, and introducing some great lesser-known writers. You like this stuff, go check it out. Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense and Fiction. You can try it for free for a full month of unlimited access, including Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash book riot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash book riot for your free month. Go check it out. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. All right. Heists? Can we talk about heists? You know I love a heist. So you don't know this story. You saw no, the headline, I... but you don't know the details. So I'm going to play exactly uh, explainer-in-chief a little bit. Tell me the story. All right. So two dudes were charged with stealing, and one of them is admitted to it. So okay. it's one and a half men, uh, starring Charlie <laughs> Sheen and that other guy. Uh, two men charged with stealing more than $8 million Ooh. in rare books from the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, Okay. Um, basically, there were these two guys. Uh, one, the, the, the librarian's name um, is Greg Pryor, I believe, P-R-I-O-R-E, uh, who worked as the sole archivist. This is a big, this is, you shouldn't do this. One archivist and manager of the library's rare book room. He's been there since 1992. He's oh, charged it- with theft, receiving stolen property, conspiracy, retail theft, library theft, Criminal mischief, mischief, and forgery. And it says Together, that the ahead. thefts were over twenty years. Twenty year period. What? So this is a long con. Uh, John Schulman, fifty four of Squirrel Hill, owns Caliban Bookshop. Is charged with theft, receiving stolen property, dealing in proceeds of elective electivity, conspiracy, retail theft, theft by deception. Are there other kinds of thefts? That's just smash and grab, theft <laughs> by deception. I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, forgery and deceptive business practices. So here's the deal. Basically, okay. over the last 20 years, Greg has been secreting out pieces of books mm-hmm. from the rare book collection at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, and John Schulman is the fence, essentially, yep. who's been then going on to sell them to persons unknown. There's not, there's not a lot of talk here. Um, what ha- they would take out, basically, it sounds like it started with like just a map, you know, that's how they get you. You just still just give me a map, Greg, and I'll move it for you. We'll, we'll each make out like bandits because we we are bandits. Um, <laughs> so what they've been doing this over twenty years. I guess they got more and more emboldened because mm-hmm. really it's this is not Ocean's Eleven stuff here. Basically, they said he would cut out a map, put it in a Manila folder, and take it out of the library. There's no one else there. They don't have like paper detectors in as you go in and right. out of the library, so you could just take it out as people didn't know or weren't looking. Um, you may not know, I guess, if you're looking at an old book and you, one of the maps was missing. That happens in old books. You may not even know necessarily there's some things amiss. There finally what happened is um, last year, there was an audit oh boy. that took place where this company came in. 
um, Paul Mall was the auditing company, and they found some 300 items were missing from the library's collections and 16 more were, quote-unquote, diminished or vandalized removal portion of the original item. So I guess they got away with it until someone, like, looked at the stuff. Yeah. Well, um, do, so was the audit – Does it? do you know if the audit was just, like – a thing that happened or was someone suspicious know. and activated? We don't know. In this particular article, I think there are many more shoes to drop in this particular page, mm-hmm. uh, this particular um, uh, footlocker about <laughs> what's going on here. Um, the, the the two biggest heists, the biggest pieces, there was a, a Principia Mathematica by Newton, that, mm-hmm. which is like one of the most valuable books in history, valued at $900,000, which they took out. Also... Um, the Journal of George Washington. Well, that is must have been bold. a copy. I don't even know. It says that's only worth two hundred fifty. Must be a, a must have been a printed edition, not the actual journal. Mm-hmm. But still, that's a quarter million clams right there. Good um, grief! And it's just, I think it's motive and opportunity sure. uh, situation happened here. Uh, prior prior, the librarian is saying, you know, I did this. I'm sorry. I, I let everyone down. The other guy talked me into it. Though he also says he approached the other guy to start with. Oh, but the other I, guy made more money? Made more right? money. Uh, at this point, does anyone care? Oh, oh I'm so sorry, Greg. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 you, your conspirator made more money in yeah, your legal stealing of books you know, than you did. I feel so they terrible broke, for you. They broke bad and they liked it. <laughs> I guess so. Um, I'm surprised. I'd like to know. It sounds like once someone... It's kind of one of those things like this was um, security through obscurity with this crime. Like no one was looking so they could get away Mm -hmm. with it. But as soon as someone looked, it was like. Obvious. uh, I'd like to know how the librarian. This is a rare books library. What is he? How did he launder the money? Like, okay, there's $8 million in rare books. Say he got 50% of the proceeds. Let's just say. And Mm -hmm. let's say it got fenced for a quarter of the street value. So that's still $2 million. He's got a million dollars to account for. How did did he did he take it in cash? Like I like I guess what I'm more interested in now is like the crime's not that interesting. What do you do with the money? Mm-hmm. Like how did that part work? Did and Schulman? I know rare book people like to deal in provenance. So like, how did Schulman convince people he was selling these things to that they were, or did he even care? I mean I don't know. Right, like that's like, who bought these things. Where did they end up? There are uh, so what many. What were they told about the origin? Yeah. There are so many ways that this could have been discovered. I really need to know like what activated the need for the audit. Like if right. it was, if somebody was suspicious, I read a book a couple of years ago called Provenance that was about um, art forgeries. Yes. And that I, if I'm remembering correctly, the way that the forgers got discovered was they sold a forgery to the wrong person, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's like, did Schulman sell one of these to somebody who took a beat and was like, wait, this mm. guy shouldn't have this or it could be. Yeah. Um, I, I need to, I need to know more, Jeff. I love a heist. I would watch like a Breaking Bad style show mm-hmm. about people heisting literary, like rare literary goods for sure. So it says he guessed the last time he sold anything to Mr. Schulman was December 2016 because he knew an audit was planned for the next oh, year. Okay. Uh, and he just maybe didn't think that these things missing would be apparent. Yeah, here's another deal. What if Pryor found out that the audit was going to happen for whatever reason? Maybe it's not something that happens very often, but some mm. some other time someone's going to happen. Maybe he rolled on Schulman. Mm. Like he says, I'm going to get caught here. But if no. I can give if I can give the feds my buyer, maybe I'll, you know, I've seen enough law and order to know how these yep. things work. Yeah. Um so, can we get an investigator? Jennifer Jarvis, a library employee from the early 2000s, told detectives that she was working the closed Texas library one day and saw Mr. Schulman looking at books with Mr. Pryor. She knew this area was closed to the public and was concerned as to why it was allowed in the area. Um, hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. It said, I don't know if she turned it over. Maybe, maybe there was. Yeah, what was the what was the what uh, was the thing? The thread that someone mm-hmm. saw to pull on exactly. that unraveled the whole thing. So anyway, there you go. There's you also get a full. There's like an embedded PDF, which is really hard to navigate. But there's 13 pages of all the crap um, that uh, was. Ta- I mean, a lot of this. I've never heard of a lot of the stuff. I mean, who who knows? This is the rare book world, so they have their mm-hmm. own um, unusual interests. Let's put it that way about what's what's interesting. But wow, I've never heard of anything like this. 
Um, I guess the other fascinating thing is how banal the heist is. Right. You just took them out. Yeah. There's no <laughs> like real subterfuge here. Yeah. He just put pages in manila folders and walked out the door. That's it reminds me of this hiding one of my in favorite plain sight. crime stories I heard. And I don't know if it's true. I, I don't even remember where I heard the story initially, but there was um, a, a ring of thieves who blackmailed a locksmith in New York into making them a set of keys for the old parking meters that took coins in New York. And so that, you know, basically they would go and they had figured it out though. They wouldn't go take all the coins. They would, they, they watched and watched the cycles of when the coins were collected Mm. and would take in the middle of the cycle. So there was always coins being collected. Mm -hmm. And eventually what happened is the, the locksmith died and left in his safe deposit box, basically a full accounting of the crime and who was involved. And they stole like $11 million in quarters what? over like 30 years. I'll have to find, now Now that I said it on the internet, I'm going to have to go find a source and maybe it's all garbage or I had it in like a fever dream while I had scarlet uh, fever that one time. But that's my, that, genius. That my memory is, it's too good of, it's a too good of a story not to be true and even if it isn't true, still a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take that uh, and, run, and run with it. But anyway, this is that kind of a thing where it was just available, didn't have to do much. Maybe if they, I don't know. I wonder how much they could have stolen over what interval and, and gotten away with it. Mm. Did they get too greedy? Was it too late? If it's, if they take 10 maps with an exacto out of 10 different books over 20 years, does that raise an eyebrow? Right, did but those get noticed? Newton's Principia, I don't know what happened to Newton's Principia, guys. It was here a minute ago. <laughs> I, that seems like that's harder to sell to or yeah, it would be interesting to know the order in which these items of value went missing. Yeah. Like one would assume they did start with something small, and then when that when those went okay, he was like, "What if I took this nine hundred thousand dollar book?" I guess wow. yeah. It, 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 you get in over your head, and then you're just the, I mean, over once your head, you're just in take the pool. everything. Yeah, you might as well swim. Um, anyway, so that's our show. Let's let's end. We can't end any better than that. We'll save this other, you know, yeah. fun one for maybe next week or the week after. Send us the emails. Podcast at bookwright.com. What do we want to know? Did we want to know something? Did we want to know? Like I we, don't... Oh, pictures. Oh, if you're in yes. Wembley for Ikea, I'd love to know that. That's a very specific request. You know, it's like, a very, like we're down to the uh, UK equivalent of zip codes for that kind <laughs> of request. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, The Great Courses Plus, Google Play, and How... To love a Jamaican, which is liberty approved. I just was told that by my co-host. Um, Rebecca, thank you. And I will see you and I'll be back in two weeks. I'm not going yeah. anywhere. I mean, I'm going nice somewhere, trip. but I'm coming back. I'm not going anywhere yeah. permanently. All right. Fair enough. Um, All right. Bye, guys. Have a good one. Bye.